Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Solana podcast. I'm your guest host, Joe McCann. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Maple Finance CEO and founder, Sid Powell. Sid, welcome. Hey, Joe. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. My pleasure. I've been looking forward to this one. For the folks that aren't necessarily familiar with Maple Finance, can you just maybe give a brief introduction as to who you guys are and what you do? So Maple is a DeFi lending platform. We think of ourselves as a marketplace for institutional lending. So the right type of mental model to to think about that with is in the same way that Shopify kind of provides out-of-the-box tooling to run an e-commerce business, what Maple is trying to do is provide tooling to run a lending business that just happens to be on chain. So the way that Maple works at a high level is you have managers of pools. We call them delegates. They'll set up a pool, which is kind of like an on-chain uh, lending business or on-chain credit fund. People and institutions deposit into that. And then the manager goes and originates loans to corporate borrowers out of it. So it's kind of you know recreating a TradFi credit fund or a TradFi lending business, but doing this on-chain. That raises like a first question for me then is, if I'm providing a loan to an actual business, how does Maple go about kind of you know, determining the credit worthiness of that particular business? It's a good question. And what we've tried to do with Maple is be asset light in that Maple does not want to be the lender or the balance sheet. It's the balance sheet lender itself. Instead, what we're trying to do is give people who have the expertise to underwrite and assess credit. So think like people who were in credit teams at financial institutions before, or they might have been in investment banking, but they understand credit and underwriting loans. What they're doing is they would follow a fairly conventional process where they would meet the management of the borrower, assess their financials, so balance sheet profitability, and then enter a loan contract with them and set commercial terms around it. So it is replicating a fairly conventional and tried and true process of assessing whether a borrower can repay the loan. It's not really reliant on on-chain determinants of creditworthiness in that respect. Really where the blockchain comes in is actually settlement and management of loans and portfolios of loans. Got it. That makes total sense. I mean, you're really saying, hey, look, TradFi folks that understand how to evaluate credit and credit risk and, and credit worthiness, here's a new avenue for you to do this, which is on chain. And so does that imply that there's more or less like a, a much larger market for this? Or is it more just kind of breaking down the barriers of how TradFi you know, credit funds or, or credit desks actually tend to work? It's both. I often like looking at business history. And one of the things I was always really interested in was the way that when Sony released the Walkman, it actually expanded the addressable market of people listening to music because they made it more portable and therefore easier to access. And so I think with this, what we're trying to do is we're breaking down the workflows of running a lending business, but we're making it like 10x simpler and less costly to run and operate that lending business or credit fund. And so I think what that does, it actually expands the addressable market of people who can do credit to businesses, institutions, and corporate borrowers. I think that market's really underserved, and I think that's actually going to crimp innovation and entrepreneurship in the economy and in the private sector. And so what we're trying to do is expand the supply of people who can operate and run lending businesses so that the private sector can get access to more and better credit. And the demand for that is not really being well met by the banking sector today. So I think, you know, there are a few suppliers in the private credit or private debt markets, 
These would include players like Fortress Group. But I think with this technology, if we're successful, we should see a lot more of those types of players because it will be significantly easier to set up and run that business. Those businesses will be more profitable to run. And this is beneficial for the economy. And so how does someone get started with Maple then? I mean, it sounds like there may be a couple of different avenues. I just want to make sure we kind of go through the permutations of the opportunities for, say, individuals or actual companies that want to create this kind of, you know, Fortress 2.0, if you will. Yeah. So the central company or user of the platform, that role, we call it a delegate, but that's the manager of a pool. And so they're kind of, in effect, your, your lending business that's being conducted on chain. So those types of players, how they would get started, you know, they go through due diligence uh, with us. And then once they're admitted to the platform, we really want to go through and see what kind of sector they would be lending to, how they would attract institutions or individuals to lend into their pools, and then who on the other side are going to be the borrowers. You know, we want to make sure that it's either a new sector, you know, it's a growing, it's a profitable sector, it's one where there are fairly creditworthy borrowers. We're trying not to get into things that are too speculative. It's not for, you know, small businesses and for startups. It's more for established companies that are profitable, that have a great track record and a big opportunity. But so that's one side. And then on the other side, institutions who are going to lend into the platform or individuals. I mean, this is typically could be wealth aggregators, hedge funds, family offices, high net worths. But what they're looking for is a place to park capital and pretty simply earn a yield. That yield is going to be higher than going into things like Aave or Compound because you're taking credit risk. You know, you are lending to corporate borrowers. And so there is risk involved in that. But generally, these types of players have a fairly long time horizon and they're reasonably sophisticated in their understanding. So that's lenders. And then the other side is borrowers. Now, these are typically corporates who are crypto native at the moment. So that's like the small wedge. Like if you think about when you're going to attack a market, you have to start with a wedge. And what we did was started with crypto native companies who are generally market makers, high frequency traders or arbitrage traders. But that's one sector within the crypto industry that we can attack first. And then, you know, next we want to look at other subsectors, which could be infrastructure. So it could be players like Figment, Blockdaemon, Chorus, could be Bitcoin miners like Marathon, Core Scientific, um, any of these publicly listed players or even large private players. And then beyond that, we want to start to look at SaaS companies. The goal here is not to kind of live solely within crypto. We think crypto is tremendous infrastructure, but it's infrastructure that gives us an edge over traditional finance. And so, you know, that's not really going to be successful until you can actually bridge and replace traditional finance in lending to those sectors. Yeah, that's really smart. Spoken like a true founder too, you know, you got to start with your wedge and then expand from there. I love that. (laughs) This kind of raises an interesting point though. Today, starting with say crypto companies, I think makes a ton of sense. But more importantly, when folks create a pool and then, you know, say a, a family office or an institution decides to lend into that pool, what happens if someone defaults, right? So in traditional finance, and I'm, I'm definitely kind of, you know, butchering this a little bit just to, to keep it short, but let's assume a business goes to a traditional bank and says, I'd like to borrow a million dollars for working capital. And they say, well, what's your business? Well, my business is, I don't know, we build warehouses or something, Right. And they say, well, what are you going to pledge as collateral? Well, maybe they own the land, right? That they're going to build these warehouses on or something. 
in theory, uh, and maybe even in practice, if they were to default on that loan, the the lender would then have a kind of a legal claim against, say, the land that they pledged as collateral. How does that work? Uh, not only necessarily just in the the wedge that you're using with crypto companies today, but as you move towards, you know, call it infrastructure companies and even potentially SaaS businesses, how does default work in kind of the recapture of that collateral? The way that lending began in crypto was largely over collateralized, and it was using liquid financial assets, cryptocurrency, to serve as that collateral. And then the lender would take possession of it and then liquidate it if, you know, if it dropped below a certain rate or if the borrower fails to repay. It's now sort of evolved towards under collateralized lending. Certainly most institutions borrow under collateralized now. And this means really what you're having to do is underwrite and assess the strength of their balance sheet. A lot of people think that this is an aberration, but this is actually most commercial lending. So if you're lending against real estate, that would typically be an asset backed lend. But if you're lending to say Apple or a large technology company, typically they don't have a lot of property, plant and equipment. They don't own a lot of land and you wouldn't take, you're, you're not going to get your money back by being able to sell their land. Uh, instead, what you're looking at is the equity of their balance sheet and the profitability of their business. And so where this type of lending can evolve would be a, effectively a secured loan, but the security for that loan would be a charge over that corporate entity. So that's what we're looking at as we expand into other sectors. But I think to be able to actually serve the broad corporate market and eventually have you know Fortune 500 companies borrowing through DeFi, you need to get comfortable with that type of risk, which means assessing the balance sheet of a borrower. I will say that if you take security over a house and a borrower defaults, the foreclosure process is about 18 months. You'll get your money back, but it will take a significant amount of time. So it's not liquid collateral. And anyone who thinks that DeFi lending against those type of assets is going to give them you know, an instant payback if there's a default is going to be disappointed. But if you're lending against the assets of a corporate, you want to make sure ideally they're not going to default. Your recovery is going to be lower than if you're lending against a house. But your probability of default is probably also correspondingly lower if you're lending to a large corporate than an individual who just owns a house or a small business who's pledging a house as collateral. You are still lending against the effectively the strength of the business and the profitability of the business. But as crypto goes into other sectors, I can see asset-backed loans also playing a role. Like we would look at real estate-backed loans, but currently one of the main issues is that that requires paper filing in any individual state that you borrow from. So it's like, it's not even 10 years behind, it's like 40 years behind in terms of actually having to file security and, and manage the ops side of that. Got it. Very helpful answer. I think the takeaway really is, it's like, look, if you're lending money to Apple, I love that example, you're not necessarily having them pledge <laughs> their uh, one infinite loop yeah. address and ownership of that land as as collateral, you're saying, look, it's Apple, right? Yeah. Like they've got uh, a ton of cash on their balance sheet or they've got you know great potential for future cash flows, et cetera, et cetera. We're just taking that to something like Maple's platform and folks can assess, like you said, it's really up to uh, the lenders to assess the, the, the credit worthiness, right? One of the innovations that we've tried to build in is that if you're coming to the platform and you want to deposit into a pool, you don't have to be a sophisticated underwriter yourself. Like what we're trying to build is a way for you to assess that here's a pool that is lending to this kind of risk profile, let's say like mega cap companies based in the US. Here's the historical performance, like it's earned this much in yield. 
there have been X number of defaults. And then you have a buyer on the management team that is making those lending decisions. And that enables you to decide, okay, I'm going to allocate a bit into this pool and maybe a bit into a second pool, rather than you having to come to the platform and go, well, do I want to lend to company A or do I want to lend to company B? Because it's not really in most people's expertise or ability to devote that kind of time to doing that. And I think that was why earlier peer-to-peer lending platforms like Lending Club didn't quite take off and achieve widespread adoption because that model is just super inefficient for both the borrower who's coming to a platform and doesn't know who they can borrow from, as well as the lenders who come to the platform and don't know how to assess whether Apple is going to repay its loan. Apple's probably a poor example, but some other company. Well, and speaking of defaults, we would be remiss not to talk a little bit about some of the challenges facing the the lending industry in, in crypto right now. Without having to necessarily name names, I think it's pretty well understood at this point that there's been some stress in the uh, the credit markets, if you will, when it comes to crypto. Can you kind of talk a little bit about maybe how Maple does or does not kind of quote unquote hedge against that being kind of more of like the facilitator and it's really on the lender's ability to evaluate that risk? Or are there any sort of advantages that uh, Maple provides that theoretically could have mitigated some of the challenges that some of the lenders in crypto have faced? So there's probably three key advantages or differences for doing this in DeFi, which would have been risk mitigants. So the way that Maple works is you have multiple pools. Each pool is kind of a basket of loans that you can deposit into, and effectively you're lending to those borrowers on the other side. Number one is that all of the loans and flow of funds is totally transparent and on-chain. So if you go into a Maple pool, you can see who the 25 different borrowers are. So you'd never have a situation where you wake up tomorrow and you find out that a Maple pool was actually lending to a borrower that you had no idea about, and that that borrower was like 30% of the pool. So that's you know, transparency is, is risk mitigant, number one. Number two is that the withdrawals and flow of liquidity is all just governed by smart contracts. So as cash flows back into the pools, people can withdraw. So you'd never have a situation where you go and you find that on a discretionary basis, withdrawals have been halted. At the moment, liquidity is constrained, but it's purely dependent on just paybacks of the loans, which are coming through over the next 60, you know, 60, 90 days and beyond. Uh, and then element three is you can see that there is a reserve for each of the pools. So the reserve is there and it can absorb some of the credit losses. I would say our reserves in the pools at the moment are probably undersized where they should be on a normalized basis. And that's a learning, but conceptually having that reserve on chain, I think gives people who are lending into pools and into protocols comfort when they can see effectively see the kind of buffer that is available to protect, you know, people who are a senior there. Otherwise, you know, contrasting that with more black box CFI lending, it's just a feature that is not there. Weird. So you mean more transparency is actually better for market participants? Well, I think I think <laughs> yeah. I think um yeah, at this stage with current events, it's kind of like a clear argument, yes. I think where CFI lending has advantages is obviously in flexibility. Having a protocol and and, and being governed by those rules obviously creates inflexibility and um, you know, slows things down a bit. But I would say ultimately that what we're actually trying to design is a system that is resilient and robust enough to shocks that it doesn't require a kind of bail-in or lender of last resort concept. Because over a long enough period of time, you will see enough volatility that stresses things that rely on a single counterparty. We saw during the GFC, you know, everyone was insured by AIG. Well, 
when there was a, an outsized level of defaults, AIG went bust. Then no one was insured. That's right. Yeah. It's interesting. I was chatting with a coworker of mine who was at Lehman Brothers during the GFC, and, and he was having a, a little bit of flashbacks to some of the stuff that's been happening in crypto today with the CFI-related lending. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Maple itself. So the protocol, this is obviously the Solana podcast. We're going to get into the Solana integration in a second. But I, I really wanted to provide the listeners with a fairly you know, solid understanding of, of the, the, the actual product and the business and also the business of lending so they can understand maybe you know, what Maple's token is and why, you know, what does the protocol do and how does governance work? So could you maybe just talk a little bit about if I'm a Maple token holder and and maybe I'm staking Maple or why have this protocol and, and what, what does the governance actually do for the future of, of Maple's uh, growth? It's a good question. And so the way that the token fits into things is it can be staked. So that's that's the first use. The second is that when you stake it, it can be deposited into that pool cover. Pool cover is like your, your subordinated reserve. And so the purpose it therefore provides is providing a safeguard and some absorption for credit losses, in addition to being used as the governance token to make decisions on the platform. So what you would do then in terms of a workflow, so you might stake it, then you're receiving a portion of the establishment fees. So protocol treasury earns about 66 basis points on loan origination volume. And then half of that goes to pay staked tokens. And then the other element where the staked token participates is that if it's put in pool cover, pool cover is paid a portion of the interest. So it's generally in most pools, it's about 10% of the interest cash flow. So if a pool is a billion dollars paying 10% on average, it's $100 million in interest, 10% of that, so $10 million would go to pool cover. So it's going to pay effectively for credit protection there. That pool cover is comprised of the token and USDC. In future, we'll just have single-sided depositing of the token. But therefore, it receives a portion of revenues for actively participating in the credit protection of the pools and the senior lenders on the platform. So that's how it figures in the platform, both economically and from a risk allocation perspective. And I think risk allocation is super important because as I alluded to before, this is one of the ways in which we're trying to fix some of the problems inherent in TradFi lending. So an alignment of incentives is super important. And the pool delegate, so that team of managers who are deciding who are good borrowers, they have to put some of their capital into that subordinated reserve, the credit reserve. And they do that so that if there are defaults, they are among the first to take a hit. And that helps ensure that they are incentivized to maintain pretty good credit standards. It's really cool because there's there's so many ways that you can participate in Maple but also the the notion that folks have shared incentives and are aligned is I think one of the most powerful aspects of the protocol. But that raises the question of like, well, man, it seems like a lot of scope for, for some engineering talent. Let's dive into a little bit of the tech, not get too deep, but certainly enough to kind of give people an understanding of, of what it is that you've built and ultimately why and when you added uh, Solana integration, kind of what does that look like for your team and, and kind of what has been the, the, the lessons learned from, you know, starting on Ethereum and then adding and Solana support? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, looking back at our tech stack that we have on Ethereum, so we launched the Ethereum version of the protocol in May of 2021. And then we were steadily growing. So Ethereum, you know, or the protocol as a whole has done about 1.5 billion worth of loans to date. You know, it's pretty good for, for 12 months. But what we looked at as we built out Ethereum 
So there's certain things that you really keep in mind when you're developing. So upgradability was something we debated for a long time, because if you have upgradability, it gives you flexibility and it means you can kind of move faster, ideally not break things, but it gives you the ability to iterate, but it's less secure because upgrading a protocol or upgrading a component of the protocol, that's how hacks and exploits can happen. So we initially treaded more on the side of uh, security there and inflexibility. Now, as we near kind of launching Pools V2, we are thinking about upgradability and how we can have something that evolves. But it was around late last year, I was actually at Breakpoint Solana in Lisbon, and I was meeting a lot of founders who were coming from TradFi backgrounds and looking at building things on Solana. And we had been receiving comments from people who were using the platform about the transaction costs on ETH. And so that prompted us to start looking at, you know, could we build on layer twos? Should we evaluate alternative layer ones? And being at the conference, yeah, I was I was very much struck by one, the level of development in the ecosystem, particularly on the DeFi side, two, the level of talent that was kind of moving across there. And a lot of our clients and borrowers like Alameda obviously have a lot to do with the Solana ecosystem. And so we started researching who was doing Maple on Solana. We met a team that was called Avari, and then we ended up acquiring them. And that meant that we were able to get live on Solana you know, probably six months ahead of where we would have been. And it gave us access to really good talent in terms of Rust engineering, which was super short on supply. So for us, it meant one, speed to market, two, talent acquisition. And Jeff and Quinn, the two guys who came on board the team, like really aligned with us in terms of values. And it's given us now, I would say, the advantage of being on two chains is that you can start to build out a differentiated product that ideally isn't cannibalizing what you've already done on Ethereum. It should be meaningfully differentiated. And that's why I've been pretty excited to see things like the launch of the Solana phone, because the more differentiation and kind of uniqueness that we have on the ecosystem that that product is built on, the more we can serve a differentiated market, whether it's maybe, you know, if you have something like SolPay that that starts to introduce tech or SaaS companies into using crypto and blockchain to support their financing, then, you know, that's a market we could go and lend to. So anyway, that's kind of a long-winded, long-winded answer, but that was why we started looking at Solana. And as we're evolving that product, so there's now about 113 million in loans on Solana. Genesis and Xmargin are, are each running pools there. We're trying to see how can we build that product to serve either a unique customer base, whether it's like SaaS companies or a unique and differentiated lender. Got it. Yeah, the uh, Breakpoint conference last year, I think, was really eye-opening for a lot of folks that were kind of just getting familiar with with Solana. And the response I've heard from most people is that just the developer activity and the developer acumen, the technical acumen of the developers that were migrating towards Solana was a super strong signal to uh, why they we wanted to participate or, in your case, um, support Solana. One of the key features of Solana is this, this concept of composability. So, you know, the notion that protocols can kind of almost operate as Legos and you can kind of build various things, developers can build various things. Is there a, a notion of composability with what uh, Maple's doing, meaning could developers actually try to build something with Maple, you know, kind of powering it or as a piece of some bigger product or protocol idea that they may have? Or is Maple more meant to be kind of 
we're a vertically integrated thing that supports Solana's chain. Yeah, it's an interesting concept. It's kind of, do you go the Apple route and you kind of be vertically integrated and control your destiny? You know, initially the concept from Maple was for tranched, you know, tranched fixed income, but then it evolved to be full stack lending. And that was because DeFi was so early that we didn't really want to be dependent on other protocols to, to get to market and to grow. And so we took more of the Apple approach early on. Now, as I look at DeFi, one, I think there's actually going to be a contraction in the, the scope of different products on DeFi for a while. And so being vertically integrated is strategically pretty good for us. But the counter to the Apple approach would be kind of where Microsoft has found itself now, where I think arguably before they might not have had as strong a set of products outside of Windows and Office. But now when you look at what they've got, they've got GitHub, Teams, Xbox, gaming, Activision, like they're actually adding this kind of full suite of things where when you go into their ecosystem, you have access to all of this. And it's it's a very interesting product to serve to institutions uh, or enterprises from Microsoft side. And so I'm looking at what is like within the lending product suite, whether it's yield. So this could include swaps, could include things like credit scores, could include flavor of insurance or, or credit default swaps, or it could include different types of you know credit indices. What are kind of the adjacent or complementary products that would, one, make our product offering stronger and two, enhance the strength of a product that's trying to partner with us? So credit scores are a really natural one, but I'd, I'd say at this stage, it, it is very early on in that space just because people aren't conducting most of their economic activity on chain. But other things like fix for floating swaps or hedges, I think are a pretty good sort of complementary one. It's still very early, but those are the natural ones that I speculate about because that was what I used to do when I was in banking. Like we'd also have to go and frequently talk to like a swaps desk or a ratings agency. So I think those would be the naturally kind of the first ones. Got it. Yeah. There's a conversation that I have with a number of the founders that I advise on their, on their companies about staying very tightly scoped to what you're building versus, you know, kind of opening up almost like an API or a set of SDKs or, or a platform, if you will. And there's just trade-offs to both of those, right? Yeah. One is, is that if you are vertically integrated, well, you really control not only your destiny, but you also control the end user experience and what that end user, how they're going to interact with your product slash protocol. And that's super important, but it could potentially restrict the potential speed of the growth of what you could be doing in these adjacent areas like you're describing. Whereas if you see, say, theoretically open up a platform with APIs and SDKs for developers to build on, you're not necessarily controlling that end user experience. And that could be potentially, you know, detrimental to the brand of, of Maple, assuming, you know, someone has a poor experience. But it's a great trade-off to make, right? And I think, um, you know, staying the course of what you guys have done this far, the fact that you're even thinking about, you know, CDSs or credit scores. I mean, one of the questions that came to mind earlier was if you're bridging a lot of what happened in TradFi, are, are, are we going to start to see like a ratings agency? Are we going to start to see, you know, um, the CDOs and CDO squares? And for the listeners that may not know what that is, it's a collateralized debt obligation that could then also have various tranches associated with it, which unfortunately led to, you know, a big portion of the global financial crisis. And we don't necessarily want to recreate that. But I guess from, from my perspective, like, how do you think about that roadmap that you're doing? And, and you know, where are you going to kind of uh, doubling down? Or are there other areas where you want to partner with folks? And how do you think about that going forward? Yeah, I actually think about it a lot. I mean, we, we get a lot of inbound interest in partnerships because you know, I feel like we've, we've been around a little while and, we, and we've demonstrated a certain amount of traction. So that's good. But then a big question becomes, how do you decide and prioritize amongst those opportunities? And what I try and think about now is 
a big focus for us is which opportunities get us fastest out the gate in terms of serving non-crypto native customers right now. So there's a certain question of how much do you want to be doubling down serving crypto native borrowers versus say leaping out and serving SaaS companies. And to serve SaaS companies, the types of product integrations that you might need or just any customer outside of crypto would be things like on and off ramps. Now that's like a really intensive product development on the legal and compliance side. It's pretty. It's actually a pretty simple build, but it starts to become a strategic question of like how much effort do we want to devote to something like that versus say evaluating an alternative L1 or going to an L2. I think the scale's probably tipped in favor of looking at how quickly you can get out and serve just a wider set of customers. And I would say part of our role at this stage is trying to educate people who are not actually in crypto already and try and bring them into crypto and into DeFi rather than bringing DeFi to them. Instead of evangelizing about it to the you know people who are already in crypto, I think what we're trying to do is just demonstrate a very workable product to people who are not already in there and kind of wow them with what we think the huge benefits over doing this through like the traditional financial system. I mean, look, I love the notion and the approach of trying to get a lot more non-crypto people into DeFi. I think this is, you know, one of the things that I look for when I when I talk to founders or folks that are in the ecosystem. And I, I know that, you know, Anatoly and Raj do the same thing and the Solana Labs team more broadly is like, how can we get more and more users um, that aren't already in the space? And there's a couple ways that you can do that. One is, is you can uh, build an amazing product that's very easy to use, <laughs> easier said than done. Yeah. But the second is, is, is some partnerships. And this is what brought this to mind for me was, I think when we met in person, it was at a, a dinner that Jeremy Allaire, the CEO of Circle put on. Could you maybe talk a little bit about how uh, maybe the Circle is an example of, of how you're thinking about levering someone in the space that is absolutely doing God's work out there, working with institutions and, and folks trying to get them into crypto and DeFi. Jeremy's done an amazing job of doing this with USDC and what he's been doing at Circle. So I'd love to kind of get your take on if Circle is an example of how or someone that you would partner with to help you know accelerate some of that uh, those non-crypto native people into DeFi. Definitely. So Circle, as you said, is a great partner. So the pools lend on Maple in USDC, which is the vast majority of the lending that's happening on the platform, and also Rapdeath. But if we look at USDC, this is absolutely essential infrastructure, I think, for DeFi, because having this secure, stable currency in a digital form, which we can then distribute loans to uh, you know to corporate borrowers as well as you know companies who are coming into DeFi and looking to earn a yield are wanting that yield in stable coins. But where Circle has been Tremendous. And I think where there is a huge opportunity to grow is one, there is the Circle Yield product, which could potentially be integrated with Maple. And a partnership there would offer people access to yields coming through the platform. What they've actually done really well, which is kind of underrated, is the front end of the you know Circle Treasury and, and USDC product has, I think, the best off-ramp in the market. So we use it for our own corporate treasury management and when we have to pay things in fiat. And having that product, that's like a really good Trojan horse that if a regular non-crypto company starts using that, they have a seamless on and off ramp through which they could access a product like Maple. So we could, I could lend to a company and let's say that company is doing SaaS or it's a fintech business or even, you know, a business you know, in real estate or construction. So if we could lend USDC to that company, then they could take that 
through you know the circle front end convert it into fiat and then use it to pay vendors suppliers salaries and so i think the growth and proliferation of stablecoin usage is super essential and it's probably going to you know it's going to precede wider adoption of defi because it's a you know it's a necessary part like it's key picks and shovels for the space but i'd say that's how the circle partnership is super you know super important for us yeah, the folks at Circle are great. I have nothing but but positive things to say about them as well. And there are other partners in the space that I think have been super helpful as well to to DeFi adoption. As you think about these partnerships, you know what, what struck me earlier about when you said you think there's going to be a contraction in DeFi. How does evaluating kind of how Maple is going to play in this space? relative to the potential contraction that you're seeing. So maybe to unpack this a little bit, can you talk about maybe your view on the contraction and how that may or may not influence how you want to go out and partner with folks to you know bring on those, those uh, call it 100 million new users into DeFi? The contraction is happening broadly across all risk-on assets. So people are going risk-off for crypto, for equities, and What's happening is that because crypto is a much smaller market, the outflow is felt uh, more acutely. Uh, but we've seen out general outflows from crypto and DeFi lending as a whole. And what it's forced us to do is probably consolidate around a core working product. So in this case, it's probably caused us to, say, push out potential partnerships that are maybe less clear in their scalability because, you know, it's a bird in the hand, two in the bush. So if you have like a customer set that is kind of working and, and partnerships that are working, you have to be more circumspect and, and conservative in the new ones because you probably have less bullets. And so what the pullback is forcing us to think about is like, if we wanted to go and target a new set of borrowers, who is a new set of borrowers that we could potentially sell to lenders who would need to deposit into the pools that are lending to those borrowers? So it forces us to think about matching and extending the markets that are offered on the platform, i.e. the pools that are offered on on maple and in terms of integrations it forces us to concentrate more acutely on what partnerships you know for example circle as well as off ramps will help us extend our reach to serve customers who are you know outside of crypto so things like credit scores you have to be a little bit more conservative about because probably the next six months there's not going to be as much on-chain activity and so the you know the amount of uh, value you could get out of, say, an on-chain credit score is probably diminished for the next six months. It's not that it wouldn't work eventually. It's just that, you know, probably that goes down your priority list in the near term. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes total sense. Can we talk maybe a bit about your company? We've been talking so much about, you know, uh, DeFi and and the, the product and this and that. I probably should have asked this at the beginning of the podcast, but can you maybe just talk a little bit about, you know, the company, how old the company is and, you know, where you're located, potentially remote, like most modern companies. And, you know, what, what, what does the kind of the, the roadmap look like for folks you want to bring on or, or folks that you're looking to add to the team? The reason I bring this up is that a lot of folks that tend to listen to the podcast are very passionate about participating in the Solana ecosystem and are interested to hear about how, you know, companies started and kind of where they're going. We have an interesting structure. So kind of two segments. We've got the DAO, which raised capital, and the DAO is effectively governing the protocol and it has a multi-sig that will implement any you know major changes, deploy new contracts. And then we've got the operating company, which is employing developers, conducting business development and marketing. And so that's domiciled out of Australia. 
And that company receives grants from the Dow, which cover you know operating costs and cash burn on a quarterly basis. And I suppose with those two segments, it's worth noting. So most of the team is remote. They tend to be based out of US, Canada, UK, and Western Europe. We tried to aggregate everyone around not too many time zones so that it was easy to coordinate calls. When I was living in Australia, I used to have to do 4 a.m. calls most days. Brutal. Yeah. and uh, But we've got about 36 people at the moment. And so we were hiring more aggressively. I think in current market conditions, we pared that back a little bit, but we are still hiring. So if there are good people out there who want to join a team, we are looking for a couple of engineering roles at the moment. We're looking for a capital markets associate for anyone who is in TradFi or investment banking and, and uh, looking for a, for a change into crypto. Never a better time to do it. <laughs> and so I actually want us to run a more like a pretty lean model. So I think me, you know, me and my co-founder have always been of the opinion that you add people on kind of the basis of jobs that need to be done rather than just you know, headcount for headcount's sake. And so you know, I've definitely been inspired by the FTX model there in terms of how, how much they've been able to ship for how lean they are. I would say we've actually developed... Sales team, operations, marketing, as well as product engineering and design. So, you know, we are kind of like a, you know, a fairly complete core. And uh, so I think, you know, there are kind of potential roles on the team for someone in sales, design, or engineering, if there are good people out there. Yeah, that's, that's kind of where we got to at the moment. But in terms of roadmap... The roadmap for us is we're launching Pools V2. So there's a really complex engineering ask there. And the team is doing a lot of research. And particularly with the market events of recent market volatility and sort of, you know, some of some of the points and, and implosions we noted in the CFI side, we're trying to take learnings and incorporate them into Pools V2. So this would include things like how to have a better withdrawal mechanism, how to have better cover support i.e. credit protection, because people are really more acutely concerned about that. And that's something that probably wasn't a big market focus six months ago. And then better asset liability matching, which is that point I made about sustainability of a lending business. You know, you can't fund term loans without cold deposits. And so we just want to get better about matching those up. But then on Solana, what we're focused on at the moment is things like open term loans, like active collateral management. These are the types of things that we think is going to be super interesting tooling to bring more CFI businesses onto DeFi rails. So I think we're focused on, you know, we recognize that that is a core customer set of ours. And it's like, how do we build the tooling that means that you would want to run a multi-billion dollar lending business on top of DeFi rails? Wow, fascinating. And, and man, could we use that? If there's anything that we learned, I think this year thus far is, Self-custody is is definitely going to be a key thing going forward. Self-custody is king. Yeah. Well, look, um, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. I have one last question for you, and we will absolutely hold you to it long term. <laughs> You've been talking a lot about lending, and, and there's an interest rate associated with those loans. In the United States, and I think some of the other central banks are following suit, we've been raising interest rates. So how do you think a little bit about competing with some of the the broader interest rate markets and and something that Maple can actually provide. Does that actually factor in? How do you think about, I guess, monetary policy from central banks relative to the business that, that Maple's building? For a really long time, rates on crypto were outside, rates in, let's call it like the real or traditional economy. And that was because there was a lack of uh, liquidity there. Then what we saw, rates in traditional economies started to go up, but 
because there was actually more supply coming through, particularly earlier this year, we actually saw rates drop. And so the delta between TradFi and DeFi slash CeFi rates really compressed. Now we've seen with the implosion of liquidity, like, you know, liquidity has totally dried up. We've seen rates go way wider again. So rates now sort of blowing out to like mid-teen levels. You can probably clear in crypto and DeFi. I kind of, I'm a big student of financial history and I look back at like the last time that inflation was this bad, which was probably the Volcker era. And, you know, rates got up to like, cash rates got up to double digits to, uh, you know, to break the back of inflation. And I'm kind of interested because I still think that lending rates in the traditional economy are sub inflation and therefore everybody who's lending in the real economy is still earning a negative real rate of return whereas in crypto at least you're earning you know a rate that clears inflation but i'm interested to see and i wouldn't be surprised if rates continued to go up in the cash rates and the and the tradfi economy up to like high single digits and then in defi you know defi and crypto that probably pushes them like close to like high teens and yeah, I wouldn't consider that out of the ordinary. I think people assume that because we haven't seen that in 20 years, that that's not possible. But I would say in the 60s, rates were pretty normal, you know, single digits, low single digits. And in the 80s, you know, inflation was double digits. So so basically, to wrap it all up, you're saying crypto rates will be clearing inflation, whereas the real economy, likely not so. Crypto, you can't have a fundamental, like that distortive effect of the central bank where you have people who are lending out at, you know, negative real rates because they're below inflation. Like I think in crypto, there is a demanded risk premium and the it's, it's a more pure form of capitalism, I would say, where people are going to price rates so that they can clear a real positive rate. So I'd say with supply inflows being limited, I'd say that effect is kind of more exacerbated. So I probably expect to see the spread between crypto and TradFi actually widen over the next 12 months. Very cool. Well, we will absolutely hold you to that. And in 12 <laughs> months, we will we will verify that you are correct. Sid, this was a great conversation. Thanks so much for, for sharing your story with Maple. And if folks want to find you and Maple online, where should they look? So you can go to our website, maple.finance. That's where you can find the web app, any news and updates. Uh, if you're active on crypto Twitter, you can find Maple at Maple Finance. And you can find me at Syrup Sid, uh, both one word. If anyone wants to reach out, happy to, uh, happy to make contact with them. Great stuff. Thanks, Sid. Well, it was an awesome conversation. It was such a great time hosting the Solana podcast again. My name is Joe McCann. I'll see you guys next time. Thanks, Joe.